Thank you, Brother Jake. One of the comments that Brother Jake made uh, when he opened up the service this morning was that today may be the last Sunday for some people. In fact, in the world, for sure, this will be the last Sunday that they will live. And we don't know if it will be the last Sunday for somebody here. In the days of old, the saints of old, when they had local churches, I mentioned in the past that they had the burial sites right next to the church. So that when they would come to church every Lord's Day, they would see that the fellow saints that have gone with the Lord are right there. And it's a reminder that we are getting ready in order for us to be in their place very soon. Uh, about three weeks ago, I was invited to preach at a funeral of a dear man who was 44 years old. Okay, I'm 42. That's my peer. Okay, and that really should shake us up and make us aware of the reality that learning about the Word of God, getting right with God, is literally a matter of life and death. So as we exposit God's Word, my brothers and sisters, please take note that this is a matter of life and death for ourselves, for our families, for our children. So as we go through God's word this very day, let us keep that solemn attitude in mind. If you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Romans chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. The word of God with absolute authority and without error reads as follows. As for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you acknowledging that you are holy, that you are good, that you are gracious. We pray that your word may edify us this morning. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that the preaching of your word would produce faith with the hearers. May we be convicted of sin. May we be convicted of any self-righteousness. And may we be also be convicted of the fact that we have to grow in our faith. To become those with weaker faith to stronger faith. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Alright, so I've titled today's sermon... To eat or not to eat. Free conscience of believers. In chapter 14, Paul is exhorting the believers at the local church in Rome to be aware that not every member of that congregation will hold the same convictions when it comes to secondary issues. Matters of eating, matters of what we consume 
is a secondary issue. The word of caution here that is for believers not to make hard rules where scripture has not commanded one another. For instance, when it comes to eating meat or not eating meat, which is specifically what the passage deals with today, the Bible has not said, thou shalt not eat meat. But it has neither said, thou shalt eat only meat. This is an area of freedom that each believer can have. Now, the Church of Rome was composed of two primary groups, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Understandably, each of those groups had very different traditions when it comes to foods that they consumed. When it comes to feasts they celebrated, and when it came to what cultural traditions the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians would have and would partake of. So what we take as Paul's main point of today's text is the following. Do not pass judgment on what your brother eats. Do not pass judgment on what your brother eats. Now to further clarify, the reason for not making hard rules about dietary or drinking restrictions is because our righteousness before God does not depend on what we eat or what we drink. We're going to get to this verse a little bit ahead of ourselves here in a couple of weeks, but it reads as follows. Romans 14, 17 says this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay. So it is not whatever we're going to eat or drink that is going to produce righteousness in us. Okay. And this is a very important point for the Jewish believers especially because they came from an upbringing from the tradition literally for thousands of years that they had those restrictions. And we need to remember that Paul is telling them it is not a matter of eating and drinking. That is the kingdom of God. And then let's take a quick look at Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11, and then verses 15 through 20. This is what Jesus says in regards to what we consume. Jesus says the following. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then verse 15 it says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Does not defile anyone. So with that said, understanding that it is not what we eat or what we abstain from eating that gives us righteousness, right? It is what comes out from us because we, by nature, are wicked. We need to watch out what comes out of our mouths, not what we put in, right? When it comes to eating. So, without sin, it doesn't mean 
that all lifestyles of eating and drinking are created equal. We must not bind ourselves to that idol. As Christians, we are expected, we are commanded to be good stewards of our physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The physical body that we have is the gift of God, and it is very important to God. So to have the attitude to say, well, you know, this is just my physical temporary tent, is not a biblical attitude to have. We are to be good stewards of our physical body. Now, that said, we're going to take it further. We are also warned in Scripture that one can become self-righteous if we do eat well and we exercise well and we are in shape. While that is commendable, there's also a warning about that. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, says the following. For while the, body tra the bodily training is of some value, that is exercise, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay. So as much as physical exercise is good, is commendable, it is part of how we take care of the body that the Lord has given us. What we eat, the choices we make that will affect our physical body, we will give an account for that to the Lord. Make no mistake. As important as that is, Paul says, that will benefit you for this lifetime only. Whereas godliness, which is in every value, is spiritual which will be for this lifetime, you're going to be benefiting from that, but also in the life to come. So then, the highest virtue is spiritual maturity, maturity of character that displays itself in Christ-like behavior. More generally speaking, and coming back to the topic of Christian liberty, the liberty of conscience for a believer does not mean that one size fits all for what I eat, for what I drink, for what I see, for what I listen to, for what I watch. This type of conscience-dependent uh, attitude will be on the basis of each believer, of each person, the maturity that they're on, and how God is slowly building them up and how the local church is welcoming them and discipling them and building them up as well. So this is one of the longest introductions I've done in a while, but hopefully we can see why. This is my punchline here. My brother, my sister, take note of this. You are not more righteous than your brother or sister because of what you eat or what you don't eat. You are not more righteous than your brother or your sister because of what you partake or because of what you abstain. Your righteousness comes from the righteousness of Christ alone, by his grace, through faith in him alone. And even that faith that has made you righteous was not something that came from you. It was something that was gifted to you. So you cannot even boast about that either. 
there's no credit to be taken for it. Okay, so the food we consume does not give you a better or worse status in the eyes of the Lord. That is not a measure of how righteous you are or how much better than your brother or sister you are. Now, let me call us out of this. Do you want a true test of how righteous and how mature you are? Do we want that type of test? Because there is. Jesus gave it to us. The true test of whether you are righteous or whether you are mature is when somebody presses your buttons, when somebody upsets you, when somebody sins against you, what is it that comes out of your mouth? Right now, think of the last time that happened. Those words you said, those thoughts you had, that determines your maturity. That determines your sanctification. That determines how long are you in having a Christ-like character. So you want to test of whether you're righteous or not? Examine the last time you had evil thoughts, you had cursed someone in your mind. That is what is coming out of you that defiles you. It is not what you eat. And we can quickly see that, oh boy, I better be careful. Because that is what God is looking at in order to determine your maturity in Christ. How are we doing in those areas, my brothers and sisters? Are you defiling yourself? Not by eating or drinking, but by what comes out of your mouth, especially when you feel you're being cornered, when you feel you're being sinned against. With that in mind, let's, let us now dig into today's passage, which all the focuses on living in harmony with each other, the differences of dietary convictions, a general principle of Christian liberty can be extracted from this. We're going to look at three ways in which the Christian is called to have an attitude among fellow believers. First, we're called to have empathy to your brother's faith. Taking into account that some will have weaker faith. Have empathy towards that. Secondly, we're going to see that we are called to be charitable to our brother's convictions. That is, show kindness to the convictions that your brother and sister has. And thirdly, we have to remember that we have to submit to our brother's master because they have been accepted by the Lord, meaning they have a master, and that master is the same master as you have. Submit to that master. So let us look at the first header. We are called to be empathetic to our brother's faith. Verses 1 and 2 reads as follows. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to peril over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Last week's emphasis was in verse 1. So we will only quickly do a recap. That is, there are some that are weaker in the faith, some that are baby Christians, they may have a different background than we do, they have a, a different growth pace than some of you do. So, when it comes to traditions and preferential matters, now not in the essentials, in the secondary matters of these conventions, 
These Christians that are weaker in the faith should be welcomed by the stronger believers. And I've said about verse 1. If you want more of that, please refer to the sermon from last week. Now, second verse. Some people have convictions about what they eat. Some specifically given here eat meat, while those that are weaker in the faith eat only vegetables. This is what the scripture tells us. The great Archie Sproul said, if you ever wanted to prove the infallibility of scripture, you have that verse right there. So then, how does this context apply? Jews and Gentiles. That's the audience that Paul is writing to. For the Jewish people, there are the very well-known dietary laws. They grew up with those Old Testament dietary laws. Jesus came and fulfilled the ceremonial laws. Therefore, the Jewish folks had no longer the obligation to those strict dietary conditions and restrictions. Even the Apostle Peter had a great struggle with that. Let us take a look at that, at that account in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 15. It says this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted to eat, they wanted to eat something. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down in its four quarters upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again and second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Okay? So here, directly by the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit, Peter is being told that he's no longer bound by dietary restrictions to call certain types of meats common or unclean. God had made that clear that once it was prohibited, now he's no longer bound to that. Now, on the other side, the Gentiles, they too came from pagan traditions that sacrificed meat to idols. And this was the point of stumbling for a lot of those Gentile Christians. When those pagan rituals would take place and they would have leftover meat that was offered to idols, that meat could potentially end up at the butcher shop or at the house of Christians who were not stumbled by that. What do you do then? 1 Corinthians 8 Verses 4 and 7, it reads as follows. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is, there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Okay, this is pretty self-explanatory, right? The Jewish folks have stumbling on eating meat because they had previous restrictions, for instance, to eat shrimp or to eat pork. And the Gentiles, they had stumbling because they come from a idolatrous culture 
that sacrificed me to idols and to them it, it was a stumbling block to now have that meat in front of them to eat. A recent example of something very similar, we met a dear couple at a church that we fellowship with, and they were telling us how they came out of this pretty weird ethnic cult, and they grew up in that cult, they were born into that cult, and they had certain dietary restrictions. By God's grace, they were saved out of that cult and into the true faith. However, when I asked them, so do you still have dietary restrictions? And both of them said, actually, we do. Like, there's some things that we don't eat, but just for our own conscience. Right? Now, that is their own conviction to keep away from certain foods. Okay? They are not going out evangelizing the rest of the church on why they, too, should adopt the dietary restrictions that they have. As a matter of fact, they told us that their kids will be anything, and they're fine with it. It is just their personal conviction that they've chosen to still abstain from certain foods. Nothing wrong with that. They have the freedom of conscience to live in such a manner. So then the key is this. Whoever's making their preferential conviction a rule for other Christians to live by are being unwise at best and legalistic and self-righteous as worse. The general principle then would be Christians will have preferential convictions about what they eat, drink. The weaker in the faith in the conscience will have different convictions than the stronger ones. In either of those cases does not mean that somebody is in sin for having different convictions than you. These are non-essential matters. So we are to have empathy towards our brother's faith as they may have weaker faith in us. Next header. Let's show charity to the convictions of our brothers and sisters. Let's be kind to them in the convictions that they have. Verse 3 reads as follows. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed So then what happens, that is often the case, when there is a difference of opinion on preferential matters among Christians? Hardly ever do we just let it be. We want to go to town, right? Hash it out. Let's find a, a resolution right now. To the point that we may end up despising each other over these differences. Paul is telling the congregation of believers, do not despise each other over these matters. Now the word there to despise, it means to utterly disdain and to treat someone contemptuously as if completely worthless or despicable. That is the sense of that word being used. That's a brutal description and a warning to not let our convictions on preferential matters escalate to the point where we will have this type of dislike for the brother, for the sister that the Lord has welcomed. All right, just a word on what I mean by preferential matters. 
These are things that are not essential to the faith. Now, they're important. They're very important. But it does not determine whether somebody is a believer or not. Just to recap of what we don't mean when we talk about preferential matters or secondary issues, we are not talking about the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. That is, for instance, the nature of God. There's only one God. He's creator. He's holy. He's just. We are not talking about, you can have your own conviction about the divinity of Christ. We're not talking about that. If you reject the divinity of Christ, you are not a Christian. We are not talking about there being more than one way to salvation. That is not a preferential matter. Salvation exists only by grace through faith in Christ, etc. What we are talking about, preferential matters, is things such as the end times, eschatology, infant baptism, in the sense of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and even Calvinism, as important as soteriology is, and it is very important, we have to accept that there are those who are genuine believers, brothers in the faith, that do not hold to our view of soteriology, that is, the study of salvation. <laughs> Preferential matters extend into these types of things, like foods we eat, our own liberty, and how we run our homes, what we watch, Christmas tree, no Christmas tree, Easter, no Easter, Halloween, no Halloween. Believe me, I have my convictions on that. But I'm not making a hard rule on what you should do according to my convictions in preferential matters. Now, there's absolutely wisdom to the exercise. You bet there is. And having these liberties in our conscience is not a license to live sinfully. Rather, that freedom of conscience, according to each person's background and preferences, should be utilized and exercised carefully to the glory of God. Remember what Paul said, that all things are lawful for him. He was a very strong, mature Christian. He said, but not all things are profitable. So just because you have a conviction and you're not in sin over it, doesn't mean that exercising that freedom you have is edifying you or others around you for that matter. So definitely wisdom should be exercised in those freedoms. So then in these matters, if we're being called to not despise each other, to not be quarreling with each other, then what are we to do? We are called to be charitable, gracious, to extend peace to another that does not share my convictions in these non-essential matters. It is important to remember that God expects and commands us to treat each other with love. Let us take a quick look at four verses that reminds us of that. The book of Romans itself, a couple chapters back, reads as follows, Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You cannot despise a brother or sister and at the same time love them and show them honor. It's impossible. Next, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you hate your brother? You hate your sister? My brothers, that's... That is a 
very hard warning for us. And especially for those of us that are married. Who is my nearest neighbor? Who is my nearest brother or sister? Just my spouse. How are we doing? John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Christians are loved by Christ. And Christ expects his children to love each other. One more, John 15, 17. These things I command to you, so that you will love one another. Let us be reminded, also in the book of 1 John, which I don't have here in the notes, but there the Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you cannot say that you love your brother I mean, you cannot say that you love God if you hate your brother. It's not possible. So you can say you love God all you want, but if you don't love your brother, your sister, your neighbor, you do not love God. You're in sin. So then, do we realize then that in our self-righteousness, in our sin, we can actually hate someone, despise someone, that God loves. Realize that. Let that sink in. There have been times when I despised someone that Christ died for. My brothers and sisters, if that doesn't convict us, what will? Do you have a higher standard of forgiveness, of love for your brother and sister than Christ himself has? How can we despise, have contempt continually to our neighbor, to our brother, to our sister, if God has accepted them and welcomed them? We may have differences of opinion, yes, even in very important matters, yes. <coughs> Nevertheless, our opinions should be under God's authority. Which leads us to the third header. That is, remember that an expectation for us is to be in submission to the master of our brother or our sister. If God has welcomed them, they are Christians. As Christians, they have a master. That master is also your master. Verse 4 reads as follows Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands for false, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now this question here, the first part of the verse, is a rhetorical question. In other words, when it comes to personal convictions, in this case, very specifically to eating, whether you eat meat or you eat only vegetables, you have no authority to pass judgment to your brother or sister because they have a different conviction on what they eat. Now, related to the word that the scripture here uses for despise, right? Because we become contentious and we despise them. Now, the word here to pass judgment, this means to form a critical or a condemning opinion of someone. And mind you, you don't have to say nothing. 
But the moment that we have this attitude within ourselves that is condemning them critically because of an opinion that they hold, we are in sin. We are already sinned. We're passing unrighteous judgment to them. And here, this verse is telling us why we shouldn't pass this type of unrighteous judgment. Because we are not lording over people in these matters. In fact, they are servants to their own master, who is Christ, and we are under that same lordship. Look at it as an org structure, right? For those of us who work, especially in the corporate environment, there's an org chart. If you have a peer, you are at the same level. Both of you are under the same manager. Infinitely more important. If a brother or sister is in the faith, they have been admitted, welcomed by Christ. You are not their Lord. Jesus is. So this exhortation not to pass judgment is not only for the stronger to the weaker brethren. It's actually for both. To the weak brother who abstains and therefore can judge those who do partake. And then for the strong brothers... They could pass judgment because they're not stumbled and thereby they'll pass judgment on those who do stumble. There's a danger there of becoming self-righteous when it comes to eating and drinking what we consume. Now, those that abstain from certain foods and drinks often think that they are better off than those who abstain. So in a sense, that is also passing judgment. Now, granted, not all diets are created equal. There is, objectively speaking, a better way to treat our bodies. And for those of you that do, if you do that and you have a self-righteous attitude, you are in sin. You have humility. I think a while back ago I shared this, but I saw a meme that said, people who think that are, that are better than others. Number one, Christians. Number two, vegans and vegetarians. Number three, people that go to the gym. Hopefully all of us fit at least in the same category. Some of you fit in more than one. And generally speaking, the world does think that, right? That we think that we are better than others. To, by the way, I reply, don't forget that those who criticize Christians and vegans and those that go to the gym also think that they're better than them. So you're not exempt, right? Self-refuting claiming. So then, a Christian will stand or fall before God the Almighty. He is the Lord of their lives. And we are accountable to him and to him alone. That phrase that we stand or fall is legal language that can be thought of as language of justification. A believer is justified by faith before God, by faith in Christ, period. That is the basis, that is the only righteousness that God will accept. We cannot think that we're gonna gain righteousness by what we decide to eat or not eat, watch or not watch. Right, because like I said, this is 
a principle that can be extracted in order to apply it to other areas of Christian liberty, not just in eating and drinking. The right standing we have with God does not change with this secondary or preferential matters. The Lord God is master of each and every Christian. And because he is our Lord and our master, we are accountable to God. I briefly spoke about the fact that even though we have freedoms, they may not be edifying. That can easily slip into us being in sin. We will give an account for that. We can partake or be involved in activities that are not sinful. But if all of a sudden those activities take priority and we're not discipling our kids, if we're not teaching our family the word of God, our liberty in the long run has not been profitable and you have become a failure in your home. That is sin. Nevertheless, for now, in the matters of preferential conscience and lifestyles, we are not to judge a brother or sister. Now, probably in a couple of weeks, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into, can we judge? The answer is actually yes, we can. And we're going to go into depth into the misunderstandings of when somebody says, oh, you can't judge me, or you can't judge such and such. The context here is on those preferential matters, specifically, hey, I, I want to eat a ribeye after, after church. You cannot condemn me for that. If you want to go and eat a salad, I mean, kind of feel bad for you, but I cannot <laughs> condemn you, right? In these matters, we are not to pass judgment, okay? We are not to pass judgment on these matters. Now, where it comes to whether somebody's living in sin, they want to be left alone, no. And we're going to talk about that later. So then, what are some final thoughts? What can we take away from these matters that are not essential to orthodoxy? First, we ought to extend grace and withhold judgment. Be gracious to your brother and sister. If you're a strong brother, if you're a strong sister, remember that you were once weak. Extend grace to your weaker brother. In fact, I'm willing to bet that the convictions that you have right now in these non-preferential matters is something that you have grown into. It is not something that you had at the very moment the Lord saved you. The Lord has matured you. So show grace to those that don't have the same convictions. Also to the stronger brother, remember that there are some brothers that consider you the weaker brother. Okay? Because they are not stumbled by many things that you are stumbled by. And here, right, we're not talking about moral relativism, we repudiate that. But we are talking that there is a real scale of who is mature in accordance to somebody else, relative to somebody else. That is true. So if you think you are a strong brother, remember that to another brother, you are actually the weak brother. 
be humbled by that. Or perhaps you'll be humiliated if you don't humble yourself in that. Now to the weaker brethren, to the weaker sisters, you are also to withhold judgment from your brother that does not abstain from what you abstain. So you too are not exempt from passing judgment. You too are not, are not exempt from being self-righteous because you may think you're cleaner, you're healthier, etc., etc. And you may be. But that is not the basis by which your righteousness is established. Remember this. If you remember anything about the sermon, is this. Do you want a true test of virtue? Do you want a true test of your maturity? Cue up the last time you despised your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your brother. That is a true test of your maturity. How did you do and how, how have you consistently been doing? May the Lord grant us that we are maturing step by step, week by week, month by month, year by year, so that we actually do grow in faith and in maturity. In what really matters is showing Christ's likeness. That is the true test. Remember that. Secondly, remember to be wise in your practices of personal conviction. To have the right of freedom in Christ is not your right to stumble someone who is weaker than you. The Bible talks about that. Don't flaunt around your liberties in Christ to someone that you know stumbled. A right to a freedom in Christ that you have does not free you of being a wise steward, of being wise in your choices. Do not put yourself in temptation. This morning, as we were, we were getting ready for church, I actually had a great example. My son had a whistle. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take it to service, and I'm not going to blow it. I'm just going to keep it right there. And I said, are you sure, son? He thought about it and he said, you know what? I'm going to leave it here. That is a very straightforward, but that's a wise example. He knows he's going to be tempted by it. Why bring it? I mean, we have trouble as it is already. Right? My brothers and sisters, each of us have such freedoms that we think, I'm going to be fine, only to fall on your face, to stumble, not only yourself, but also with others. Be wise in the convictions, in the practices that you engage. And then a right to have the freedom in Christ does not mean that the most edifying choice will be to practice that freedom. The third takeaway, remember your master. Your personal convictions should not lead you to serve any other master than Christ. You are not your own master. You are not the master of your brother. Remember your master. While 
But it's true that we're not saved by being good or we don't keep our salvation by the secondary choices or secondary matters, that is. You always, we always have responsibility to honor our master. We cannot honor our master if we make others stumble. We cannot honor our master if we are righteous in the outside, but self-righteous in the inside, condemning everyone that does not hold my convictions. Do not use your convictions for self-righteousness or to make others stumble. The Lord will expose you. And remember that as we have the same master, the scripture here tells us that to him we will give an account. He knows our hearts. So let us take inventory of these things that we perceive we are much better at than our brothers and sisters. And you know what? Maybe we are. Maybe some of you are much better than your brothers and sisters. Maybe some of you have wiser choices than others. My brothers and sisters, if that indeed is true, let us be humble and let us come together around each other and edify each other into the maturity and full stature of Christ's likeness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we stand or fall before our master, which is Christ. In Christ, our Savior has given us eternal life. Christ, our Savior, has saved us from our sins, not to be in bondage in sin. Christ, our Savior, has saved us from the wrath to come. Oh, how grateful we are for and because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have no room to boast. We have no room to be self-righteous in this preferential matters, even if we have wisest or wiser choices in our brothers and sisters. Lord, allow us to welcome the weaker brother. And Lord, for us to think that we may be the stronger brother to somebody else, we're the weaker brother. So humble us, Lord, that we may edify each other for our good, and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.